Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 17. I'm going to just remind us where we were last Sunday and today. I'm going to read chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, but our text is relatively small. We're just covering the Berean church. If you've been around church or grown up in church, I am sure you've heard of the Bereans, that we should be good Bereans. And so we are going to focus the whole sermon today on this Berean uh, congregation. So uh, Acts chapter 17, last week's passage and this week's 1 through 15, this is the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, Also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Well, I've titled the sermon today, Becoming a Berean, Becoming a Berean. And I have a number of points to walk through, but... Uh, I want to begin just by mentioning this. Luke writes this story clearly wanting us to contrast the majority of the Jews in Thessalonica and their response to the preaching and the majority of the Jews in Berea and their response to the preaching. You have two synagogues in two cities 45 miles away from each other, so a two-day walk, two-day journey by foot, and we are meant to compare and contrast these back and forth, and at the end of the day, verse 10 of chapter 17, Luke writes, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Let me read this again. Now, they, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. He sees comparing with those. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Well, let me just sort of tie a link with last Thursday night and, and, and right now, because this is always going to be incredibly relevant. The whole sermon today is about Scripture, about God's Word. And let me just mention the passage we just looked at, 2 Timothy 3. You don't have to turn back there, but just remember this. All Scripture is God-breathed and is therefore profitable 
for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent or equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, six things really quick that we believe Scripture is. This is just central, can never leave these behind. Number one, all Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, all Scripture comes out of God's very mouth, as it were. These are God's very words. Even when a narrator is talking in the Bible, that's still God's words. Um, I understand why red-letter Bibles exist. This Bible is actually a red-letter Bible. I like it just to be able to conveniently find where Jesus is talking in the Gospels. But strictly speaking, if you're going to do that, the whole Bible should be red-letter, right? I mean, this is all God's Word. Number two. You might, you might quibble with that. Maybe you're thinking critically. You say, wait, doesn't Satan say things in the Bible? Like, did God really say in the garden? Okay, yes, that is true. There are lies that are quoted in the Bible, but the content of the story and what God is trying to tell us with those things is God's very Word and God's very message. Number two, because this is God speaking, God's Word is inerrant. Okay, inerrant simply means without error. I know that's shocking that you… you how is that? Yeah, inerrant means without error. There are no errors in God's Word. Number three, not only is the Bible without error in all that it teaches, it is also infallible. Infallible is even a stronger word because it doesn't just mean you don't have errors. If I say three plus three equals six, that is an inerrant statement in the sense that it's without error. It's a true statement, but it's not infallible because I'm making it and it's math. Definitely not infallible. Dr. Hagema, <laughs> definitely infallible. So, uh, if you think about this, very important here, infallible means incapable of a fallacious statement by its nature. God cannot lie. Crystal clear in the Bible, He cannot lie. So, when God speaks, not only is it without error, it's incapable of having a false or fallacious statement. It is infallible by its nature, unlike when we talk. We are not infallible. We make mistakes all the time. Even when I preach, you know, I'll just give you one tiny mistake I made in a sermon a while back. Uh, I mentioned that when Paul came to Athens, he, there was no synagogue, so he just preached at Mars Hill. That's not true. I went back and read it. I was like, oh, there was a synagogue. I am not infallible, okay? This is the whole point of the sermon today is you need to check what's said with the Bible, not ultimately take me or someone else's word for it, because I am not infallible. Occasionally, I make, I hope, minor mistakes when I'm preaching, and I want to go back and fix those afterwards as I'm, I don't like that. Number four, the, the Word of God is also necessary. It's necessary for our salvation. Second Timothy said, Continue in this word that you've been given that is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Without Scripture, we cannot know Christ. And without Christ, we cannot know salvation. It is necessary. God's special revelation in His word is a necessary word. We don't have to know every word in the Bible by heart to be saved, but we've got to know the basic message of Christ's salvation. Romans 10 says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Say Anyone. That is a universal invitation for all people made in God's image, which is everybody on earth. Anyone, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul says, but how will they call on Him of whom they have not believed? You can't call on someone who's not there, you think. You got to believe in Him to call on Him. How can they call if they don't believe? How can they believe unless they have heard? How can they hear unless someone is sent? That is why it is written, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news, the, the missionary, the, the, the evangelist. So, the Word of the Lord is necessary, number four. Number five, it is profitable, right? He says it is, it is profitable for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God would be equipped for all good works. So, it is profitable. Maybe Scott was saying this the other day, but, he, uh, you know, we, we tend to think of a lot of things as profitable in life. 
it is very easy to go, yeah, I know, I, the Bible, I know, I know. You put it in the back seat of your car and you just leave it there for a while, or you put it in the house after church and you kind of sit it there and it's easy to get all into social media and what's going on in the news and what's going on here and there. And it is so easy to be diverted from this word. We, can we be honest? We think we pretty much know it, don't we? We're kind of, yeah, I think I kind of know what it says. There is an arrogance in, in our hearts. I'm not talking to this church, but I'm just saying all Christians. There is an arrogance in our heart that says, I kind of know what it says, especially if you grew up in church. I know all the stories. I know the Bible. I know what it says. But what I really need to figure out is what the latest story in the news. It's like, well, where are our priorities in terms of what consumes our time? I guarantee you none of us knows any book of the Bible as well as we could or even as we should. Uh, let us not be arrogant and think, oh, old hat, I know all that. No, this is fresh. It is always God speaking in the present through His Word. And number six, God's Word is sufficient. Sufficient. The end of that passage in 2 Timothy, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work, competent, equipped, thoroughly engaged and ready for every good work. It is sufficient. It is all we need for life and godliness. So, God's Word is, number one, God-breathed. It is without error, inerrant. Number three, it is infallible. Number four, it is necessary for our salvation. Number five, it is profitable. It is so… it is more profitable than a blank check from a millionaire to you. It, it is more profitable, I promise you that. And it is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. Okay, let's look at how these Bereans respond when Paul comes to town preaching Jesus with their Old Testament Bible open, their scrolls in the synagogue open and available, how do they respond? Acts chapter 17, verse 10. Again, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, again, 45 miles away, two days' journey, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble, your translation may say more open-minded, something along those lines, than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men." So, I have really six points here. You're like, we just did six points. Okay, I got six other points here that are the real heart of the sermon, but that introductory word is just essential to understand anything that's about to happen with the Bereans. That's what they would have believed about their Old Testament, and so here comes Paul preaching Jesus. They never heard of Jesus, and they're going to try to figure out if this is biblical in line with the Old Testament Scripture. So, the first four points are going to be the Bereans were… I'll just give you one word each for these to keep it simple. The Bereans were… Teachable, number one. The Bereans were number two, eager. Number three, discerning. And number four, constant. I'll explain these. Number one, the Bereans were teachable. Number two, eager. Number three, discerning. And number four, constant. I'll have two more points in a moment, okay, before we get there. So, number one, they were teachable. I love the word teachable. I think, by the way, that teachableness is a wonderful gift, a wonderful trait for any professing Christian to possess or to have, teachableness. What does teachableness mean? Uh, Isaiah uh, says, you know, the Lord says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. So God rests uh, amongst the galaxies. He puts His feet on the earth. 
earth is my footstool. And then he says, what is the house, the temple that you would build for me? Uh, That, you know, I'm going to dwell in that. I don't really dwell in a building, really. Heaven is my throne. Then he says, but this is the one to whom I will look with favor. He who is humble and contrite at heart and who trembles at my word. That person doesn't go, oh, I've got the Bible figured out. I know what I got. I don't need it. No, 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 no. A godly person that God looks to with favor is someone who is humble. And how do we see humility? I think this is teachableness. They are trembling at the Word of God. They don't assume they've already got it down pat. They are open to be further instructed by the teaching of God's Word. If God's Word says something, I didn't grow up believing it said, and it really says that after a, after a careful investigation, I need to be humble and contrite, I need to be trembling, I need to be ready to accept whatever God's Word says for me to believe and for me to do with my life. The translation open-minded, let me, let me explain why the translators translate this word differently. The word noble, some translations, some translations open-minded, there's other translations. This word is literally, uh, I think it's the word eugenase or something like this, it's the word for uh, someone who is noble, of noble birth is what it often means, someone of high status, noble birth. But he's not talking about economic status. He's referring to people of noble thinking, and the noble thinking that he is clearly giving us here is in contrast to the Thessalonian Jewish synagogue. They were not open to hearing what Paul said. Instead, they were jealous, they shut their ears, and they chased him out of town. That's the opposite of what noble means. So we should be noble. If, if open-minded is your translation, let me, I don't have a problem with that translation per se, but let, let, me, let me kind of explain. Open-mindedness is a tricky phrase in English today. Um, is it good or bad? to be open-minded. And there's not a yes or no answer to that question in one sense, right? It's a trap. Because if you are completely open-minded, that's not going to be good because you'll never believe anything. Uh, G.K. Chesterton has the great quote on this, although I don't agree with lots of his theology. He was Roman Catholic. But he he has a great quote on this this where G.K. Chesterton said, uh, he said, the purpose of an open mind is the same as that of an open mouth. It's meant to close on something solid like when you're eating, okay? So, uh, you know, you, you, you might be a, the kind of person who has your own eating problems. You know, you go to eat, and your mouth doesn't open in time and just smash. The ice cream cone goes right into your mouth. You're like, what was I doing? I've got my own issues here. There's a bunch of stuff right here on your face. You don't want to be that closed-minded. You don't want to have your mouth closed all the time. You'll never eat. But at the same time, you just leave your mouth open, like an infant or something. You know, you just put some food in there. It's like, ooh, that's kind of gross. just kind of falls out here. So, we, we all agree. We don't want our mouth closed all the time. We don't want it open all the time. We want our mouth to be open at the right time and to close on something solid and substantial. The same is true of your mind. I do not want to be infinitely open-minded. That is to not have a brain. To just be like, anything could be true at any moment, then how can you even survive? You have to have things that you settle on and that you believe. So the mind should open to receive what is true and edifying, and it should close on what is true and edifying which is God's Word. So, if the Bible clearly teaches something, your mind should be open to it no matter if you grew up with it or not. And then when you see that the Bible teaches it, your mind should close on something solid. And if down the road, someone presents a new argument, shows you verses you hadn't seen before, and it makes you rethink it, then you can rethink it. But make sure your mouth is closing on something solid. Make sure your mind is closing on something solid and good. The Bereans were teachable. I hope this is a characteristic of our church I hope it's a characteristic for all of us. This means, again, if someone presents to you an argument from Scripture, 
that you've never heard before, that you can think through it, you use discernment, you, you need to be teachable. That is what no, the nobility looks like. Number two, they were eager. I love this. Again, verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Stop right there. They, they heard the preached word eagerly. Now, this next point is, I admit, incredibly self-serving because I'm, I'm doing that very thing right now. Okay, so I understand. This is going to sound very self-serving, but I can't help it. It's in the text. Like, I have to say what it says, even if it's a little bit awkward. So, are you ready? So, I, I do believe that, that I have a job to prepare sermons and, and to try to do that as best I can, and some sermons are certainly not, not as good, and you know that we, we keep moving after that happens, but listen, I, my job is to make sermons and to try to make them as biblical and, and the best I can, and obviously there's, there's plenty of weeks where I go home and go, what was that? But anyways, that's my, that's my job. But did you know that you have a job that is not less important than my job right now? Because if none of you are listening, and I'm up here saying things that are just like incredibly true which I hope happens, if that happens, if no one's listening, what good is that? Jesus says, let he who has an ear hear. And it is very possible for people to have their spiritual ears closed while their physical ears are open. And like it says, you know, the, the seed falls on the path soil and it can't find a place to burrow into the soil. And so the birds come along like, you know, Satan and just pick the seeds up. And before you know it, you walk out of this room and within 15 minutes, nothing from this service is remaining. It's just all gone and you're off to whatever it is that day. And it doesn't stick at all. It doesn't, it doesn't run around in your mind and begin to something you meditate on and think about and work through. As Christians, listen, I'll say this. Uh, most of my life, I've, I've not been the one preaching in a church service, okay? Most of my life, I've been sitting in the church service, and I, I had a job then, and I still have a job when that is my role. But when you, are, when you are in a room, no matter who is preaching or where you are, you have a job. And number one, well, number one, you've got to be teachable, but number two, you've got to be eager to hear the Word of God taught. That is an emotion of eagerness, a desire for it, a delighting in it. And even when the sermon, or say the preacher, is a little bit boring today, and it's not, it's not really coming across quite the way you would like, and it's a little bit more work to stay with it, you have a Christian responsibility to listen even when it's not particularly interesting or particularly gripping or particularly whatever. It, doesn't, you know, it may not even be a passage you particularly love to think about, but we owe it uh, as our Christian commitment to be teachable, but to be eager to hear what is taught and to listen with excitement, and to listen with leaning forward in our posture. I mean, not literally, but I mean, just our heart leaning forward. All of you are like, we're going to change posture. No, I'm just kidding. And, and it, you know, it's great. No guilt trip here. If you don't have a Bible in your lap, I'm not, I'm not going to guilt trip you. But it's great to have, whether it's on your iPad, your phone, although that can be distracting sometimes, or your, your Bible, having a Bible out in front of you while someone is preaching is of utmost importance if possible. Okay, and no guilt if you don't have one right now. But just saying, you need to be constantly looking at the text and saying, is what he's saying what they were saying? Is what he's saying really what's coming from this text? Because I just tell you, it is not hard for someone to sort of manipulate a room and try to make things sound other than what they are. This is dangerous. An illustration just came to my mind. Let me test it quickly. Um, I once heard, I will not name names, I once heard a extremely well, if I said his name, everybody probably, almost everybody would know this person, pastor. I heard him preach at a conference, 2012, something like that, 13. He brought up a cultural hot-button issue. I won't even say what it was. Brought up a cultural hot-button issue that I believe, as a church, we have every reason to be clear about biblically as an act of clarity and love to others. We need to be clear on this issue. It's a hot-button issue. The Bible speaks on it crystal clear, both testaments. And he was speaking to a pastor's conference. I think it was maybe in North Carolina. He was speaking to a pastor's conference. A couple hundred pastors were in the room. I watched the whole thing. And in that sermon talk, 
this well-known pastor who has written books said, gave an argument using an argument from Jesus where Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. Remember this? And the Pharisees say, where's your ministry coming from? And he says, well, first let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from man? And they know if they answer from heaven, then he'll say, why didn't you believe in him? And if they say from man, he'll say, uh, well, the, the, the crowd will try to stone them because they believe John's a real prophet. Remember that? And then they say, we don't know, which is super embarrassing because they're the PhDs in theology. We don't know uh, when everybody else knew. And then Jesus goes, well, then neither will I answer your question. And this pastor took that text and argued that because this issue was a hot-button issue in our culture, you shouldn't answer it because it would cause problems. Now, you see what happened? He took a real text of the Bible and blatantly, completely misapplied it to hundreds of pastors in the room. And I was watching it online. And about halfway through the sermon, I was like, maybe he's got a point. Then it just hit me. This is bad. This is really bad. And... um, So my point is, our Bible needs to be open. We need to be investigating. We need to be investigating what is said, no matter who is saying it or or how popular they may be. Number three, this picks right up with that same point. So number one, we need to be teachable. Number two, eager. Number three, discerning. Discerning. Do you you see it? Verse 11. I'm going to keep reading this verse today. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Here's the discerning part. Examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, do you see it? They got their scroll open in the synagogue. Paul's preaching Jesus is the fulfillment of scores of passages. And so, what do they do? Oh, that's Paul. That's great. Never heard this before. That's great. Okay, let's go look at Isaiah. Oh, Paul, that's interesting. Oh, I didn't… Okay, all right. Psalm 2. Let's read Psalm 2. Let's read Psalm 110. Let's read Psalm, whatever it would have been, Psalm 16, Psalm 72, on and on and on. Oh, oh, you just… Oh, Zechariah. Oh, let's go, let's go read Zechariah in context. Oh, you're quoting something about Abraham. Let's go read Genesis 15, 6. Oh, he, oh it says he believed God and it counted to him as righteousness. Oh, what, okay. That, uh, what they're doing is they're going and they're examining over and over and over what Paul was saying with what Scripture said. So, discernment. You know, there is something to be said for hearing another person preach something true and to learn it and go, oh, I didn't know that. That's very helpful. And, and to leave knowing it. That, that's good. I think we've all had experiences in different contexts where we've learned something from a, someone preaching and we've benefited or, and we've gone off and maybe a book, we've benefited, we've gone off. That's great. I hope that happens regularly with, with any church. But don't you know from personal experience that it is a different thing when you make the discovery alongside what you read on your own reading the Bible? Um, I hesitate to tell this story because it's a little bit distracting too, but uh, I'll just tell you a quick story. I'm not over-elevating this pastor. I disagree with him on different things, but John Piper has had a big impact on my life. I'm very, very much uh, appreciative, thankful to God for him. When I first became a Christian, it was 2003 in the summer, I graduated high school two years later, summer of 2005, and I was walking through, this is a true story, walking through Barnes and Noble, I think it was, and I, I knew John MacArthur. I didn't know much about John Piper. I saw a John MacArthur blurb on the front of Desiring God, so I bought it. I thought, okay, MacArthur said it's a good book, so I bought it, and I, I went home, and I opened it up, and I started reading Desiring God, Piper's big, famous book. And uh, Scott also had it around the same time. I think we're both reading it. So I, I started reading it, and he makes this argument, you've all heard this, about how we should pursue our joy in God because it glorifies God and it builds us up. And in my thinking, I tell you, this may sound like not a big struggle to you. That may sound obvious. Like, yeah, you should pursue joy in God, delight in God, be satisfied in God. That'll glorify God. That sounds like, okay, yeah, we know that. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Okay, but for me, this was like brand new. I can't tell you how new this felt when I read it. And I thought, this sounds selfish. 
This sounds self-centered. To pursue my joy in God sounds like a selfish, like maybe even a sinful thing. And so I didn't know if the book was correct in its basic premise. I didn't know if, it, if that saying was true. So I'm not exaggerating here. I spent a lot of time for the next two years investigating this topic. And I remember going online, I'd go on like a Bible website, and I would search every verse in the Bible. I was kind of obsessive, okay? I looked up like every verse on like joy, delight, pleasure, satisfaction. I, I read like there's like hundreds and hundreds. I would, I would read through all, like just everything I could find in the whole Bible on joy. And I was like, is this really in the Bible? And after a couple of years, I, I finally realized it was, it was basically true. The basic premise was a true thing, and it just completely changed my life. But for me, the big thing was reading my Bible for myself and starting to see how joy and God's glory were talked about oftentimes together in different texts. And I was like, oh, it's there. And so when you, just, when you see it for yourself, it is a different kind of experience. And we need to be aware of two errors. Number one is, um, I guess you could call it like, I'm going to make up a word, proof text-ism. Okay, there you go. <laughs> proof text-ism Every cult that's ever existed has Bible verses to back up what they believe. It's heresy, right? It's not hard to have a proof text, a sentence in the Bible that sounds out of context to support false teaching. So we need to be aware of proof textism. We need to always say, give me context, context, context. What does this say in the, in the whole paragraph, the whole chapter, the whole book it's in? What about the whole testament it's in? What about the whole Bible? Is this really what God's Word is teaching. The other error, or the other temptation, so one is don't fall prey to proof textism. Look at the context. What's that old saying? You've heard it, I'm sure. A text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Still not sure what all those words mean, but it sounds clever. Uh, a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. In other words, you can make the Bible say anything you want if you take verses out of context. Second Peter 3, we read it the other night, Peter says of Paul's writings that they're Scripture, but then he says, some people twist Paul's word to their own destruction. You can take Romans and twist it to your own destruction by misinterpreting Romans. That's amazing that Peter, that's in the Bible that Peter actually says it. So, beware of proof text. The other extreme thing is beware of, don't throw out a difficult doctrine before you've tested it against God's Word. So, again, if something really challenges you, don't just throw it out, investigate with God's Word. Okay, number four, they were teachable, eager, discerning. Number four, they were constant. Let me read verse 11 yet again. Now, these Jews were more, no, more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures, how often? Daily, to see if these things were so. So, this investigation for them was not a one-time deal. It was a day-in, day-out deal. If someone knew you, really, if someone knew you, now I, I know, some of us, some in the room are going to be like, you know, new moms who have very little t free time on their hands, different people are in different stages of life, things are harder and easier at different times. I'm not trying to give false guilt to anybody in the room, so hear me on that. I understand. Life stages are different, not everything's the same for everybody. I understand that. But seriously, if someone were to see your life, really, like how you spend your time day in, day out, would they think that you were really deeply in love and committed to the God of this book? W would someone pick up on that if they were around you? Would they, would they get that? Would they get that sense that you really do love God's Word and solid books about God's Word? Daily. So, just a couple verses here. So, in 2 Timothy, we heard this verse, think over, Paul says to Timothy, 
Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 2 Timothy 2.7. That's a constant thing. We take the Bible, we don't understand it fully the first time we read it. We think over it, and we think over it, and we think, and we pray, and we keep thinking. And what happens? As we do the hard work, and it's hard work to think through Bible passages. It's hard work. Anyone tells you it's just so easy. No, 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 no. Slow down, read carefully, reread. The hard work of thinking over the Bible, in that process, as we pray and think, the Lord, what? Gives understanding. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's human responsibility and God's sovereignty. We work as hard as we can, and God grants discernment as we are working through that. Similarly, if you want to look up Proverbs chapter 2, the first six or so verses, you know, if anyone wants wisdom, call out for wisdom, seek it. And if you seek it, the Lord will give it to you. Also think of Psalm chapter 1, meditating on God's Word so you become like a tree planted by streams of water. Listen, if there's a famine or a drought, you're still bearing fruit because your roots are down deep. You're next to a stream. You're next to God's life-giving Word. You're able to maintain uh, growth and strength because of God, not just because of pleasant or unpleasant circumstances. Okay, now I'm going to move into my, my last two points. So, the Bereans were teachable, eager, discerning, and constant in their investigation. My next two points are this, all because they believe Scripture was, I'm going to mention just two things, you can mention everything from the beginning of the sermon, I'll just mention two. Number one, clear, and number two, supreme. Clear and supreme. I will, I will probably wager a guess that the clarity of Scripture is one of the least talked about aspects of our doctrine of Scripture. We probably know inerrant, infallible, God-breathed. Did we know that Scripture is clear? Historically, there's a big 50-cent word. It's called the perspicuity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, which means the clarity. They picked the least clear word in the English language for clarity. Perspa what? Yeah, okay, perspicuity. Uh, the clarity, I prefer clarity. That's a simple word. The clarity of Scripture. What this means is not that every part of the Bible is equally easy to understand. That's not what this doctrine is teaching. What it's teaching is, I mean, even Peter said some things in Paul are hard to understand. So, we're not saying all of Scripture is easy. What we're saying is anybody who comes to the Bible with a humble heart, contrite, trembling before His Word, not trying to read their agenda into the text, but actually get the meaning out of the text. Do you know the difference? One is called eisegesis, which is reading into the text what you want it to say. And you can eisegete anything you want into the Bible, but that's not what the text means. That's postmodernism, right? What you believe as you read it is what the meaning is. No, no, no. What the meaning is is what the meaning is. We got to bring it out. So exegesis, fancy word, to, you know, the word exit or exodus to go out. Exegesis is to bring out of the text the meaning that is truly there in the text. Our responsibility is not to get the Bible to say what I want. It's to understand truly what the Bible actually means and says. And so we believe that the Bible's basic messages about salvation in Christ are easy enough for a child to understand. This is the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. You don't need the Pope to understand the Bible. You don't need the magisterium and the group of bishops to understand the Bible. You do not need a New Testament PhD. You don't need to have a PhD in theology to understand the, the, much of the Bible. You, you can get this because you have the Holy Spirit who illuminates God's truth and a humble heart that wants to receive it, and so much of Scripture can be clearly understood by the common everyday Christian because we believe in the clarity. You say, where is this in the text? 
The Bereans, yes, they're listening to Paul, but they, I mean, these aren't like, these are kind of, you know, I didn't mention this. Berea is 45 minutes off the main road. Do you know what I mean? No offense if you're 45 minutes off the main road, okay? We still love you. But the Via Ignatia was the primary Roman road that ran through Philippi, Apollonia, the other one, and Thessalonica, and it kept going towards Rome. Berea was 45 minutes south of that road. It was kind of out in the sticks. These may not be like the most like highly educated people imaginable that you're hearing here, but what are they doing? They are able to read the text and understand it. They're able to go, Paul says Jesus is the Messiah of Isaiah 53. Let's read Isaiah 53 like we did last week. Sounds like the same guy. That is the wonderful doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. That doesn't mean we don't benefit from PhDs who are solid or pastors who are solid, but we, we, we can go a long way on our own with Scripture, uh, and, and uh, we shouldn't disparage that. Okay, number two, uh, they did all this because they believed the Bible was supreme. The Bible was their number one final authority in their life. I got to read a great quote from Kevin Young's wonderful book on Scripture, Taking God at His Word, Why the Bible is Knowable, Necessary, and Enough, and What It Means for You and Me. It's a great, it's a short book and a wonderful book covering the doctrine of Scripture, Taking God at His Word. I'm just going to read you a couple quotes. First one's about Jesus, His view of the Bible. Second one is about this passage. So listen, these are just really uh, helpful. In the Gospels, we see Jesus reference Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaac and Jacob, manna in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses as the lawgiver, David and Solomon, the queen of Sheba, Elijah and Elisha, the widow of Zarephath, Naaman, Zechariah, and even Jonah, three days and three nights in the, in the, in the belly of the fish, never questioning a single event, a single miracle, or a single historical claim. Jesus clearly believed in the historicity of biblical history. I mean, Jesus talks about Jonah like, just as real as that was, so real will my resurrection be. Just as real as the flood in Noah's day was, that's how real my second coming is going to be. Jesus talked about the stories in the Bible that are most often made fun of in our culture, and He said, that was absolutely real, and my second coming and my death and resurrection will be equally real and historical as those events were. But He even said that on the last day, the people of Nineveh, who Jonah preached to, will rise up with, just, with, just, with this generation and condemn it because they heard the preaching of Jonah, and one greater than Jonah himself is here. Jesus took the Ninevite conversion as a real historical event that we would hear about again on the final judgment. Jesus believed every miracle, every event, every historical thing that is presented in the Old Testament as actually, factually, literally, historically true. So Jesus, if you, you go, I believe in Jesus, but not that weird Jonah stuff. I believe in Jesus, but not that flood stuff. I, I believe in Jesus, but not some of those miracles. Well, then I don't think you believe in Jesus because Jesus believed in those miracles and those stories. Here's the second quote from DeYoung. This is just very helpful. So, just a couple minutes left. Hang with me here. I'm not, by the way, I'm not making, this is not straw man argument. I'm, this is what I'm about to say is factually true. The Roman Catholic Church does not believe that Scripture is the sole final authority for the church. You can, you can read this anywhere you want. The Catholic Catechism from the 90s, you can read it, whatever you want. They say, Scripture and capital T sacred tradition are equal in authority in the church, and they are to be interpreted by the Pope and his bishops. So, 
According to Catholics, the Bible is the Word of God, but so are certain selective church traditions that were handed down that the Pope and his people pick. So you have, who has final real authority? The only person who chooses the traditions is the Pope and his bishops, and who gets the infallible ability to interpret them? The Pope and his bishops. Who's actually the authority? Just something to think about. Number two, you have liberal mainline Protestantism, which by the way is on the decline, which I'm thankful for. Modern mainline Protestantism, these are people who don't necessarily believe Jesus really rose from the dead. They certainly don't believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. For them, mainline Protestants, they will actually write this in their books. They believe human reason and perhaps science or archaeology or whatever it may be, those are the ultimate authorities and the Bible has to bow to them. So if reason contradicts the Bible, guess which one gets changed? The Bible, not my reason. Human reason becomes supreme. So listen to what de Young says here. Whatever else we may disagree on as Catholics, liberal Protestants, and evangelicals, we should at least agree that it is our view of Scripture and authority that divides us. All religion rests on authority. In fact, every academic discipline and every sphere of human inquiry rests on authority. Whether we realize it or not, we all give someone or something the last word. Now think about this. This is very relevant to every person. Our parents might be the source, our culture, our community, our feelings, the government, peer-reviewed journal articles, opinion polls, impressions, or a holy book. We all have someone or something that we turn to as the final arbiter of truth claims. For Christians, this authority is the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. The Bible is never wrong in what it affirms and must never be marginalized as anything less than the last word on everything it teaches. Last sentence. If the Bible is our final authority, as it surely was for the Bereans, which he says here, then we must be hesitant to scrub the Bible when it seems to contradict the, quote, assured results of, he gives an example, science. But you could pick anything. So here's the deal. It's not that we have nothing to learn from science. Remember Galileo? We learned something from science, right? People thought the Bible taught that the sun goes around the earth. I mean, yeah, that's right. And uh, Galileo says, well, no, 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 actually, my science is saying we need to question that. The church wouldn't listen. They got mad at him. They called him a heretic. You remember that story? And church was wrong at the time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's an embarrassment there. So I'm not saying science can't help us to kind of go back and reinvestigate a, a topic. I'm not saying that. But at the end of the day, if the assured results of science stand up against the clear teaching of God's Word, there's no question which one wins. I hope. It's God's Word. It's God's Word. So, just remember, whatever it is, if it's, is it your emotions? Is it, is it what other people think? Is it the culture? Is it celebrities? Peer-reviewed journal articles? What is it at the end of the day that has your final, uh, has final court of appeal? And if it's not God's Word, we need to turn uh, from that, which is sin, and, and to, to put God as our final uh, authority. All right, let's wrap up right here, verse 12 of Acts 17. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Let us not be like the Thessalonians here in this regard. Let us be like the Bereans who receive God's Word with humble and receptive hearts. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, when you were being tempted in your humanity by Satan himself in the wilderness, 
you turned three times to say, it is written. If man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lord Jesus, every time you were faced with temptation, you pulled out the sword of the Spirit and you held up the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And God, I pray that we would, by your grace, do the same. When we are tempted to whatever sin, intellectual sin, moral sin, whatever it may be, help us to lift up the shield of faith, to block the fiery darts of the evil one, and help us to hold up the sword of the Spirit, to cut down false belief, and help us to hold tightly to your truth in your word, and help us, like the Bereans, to be teachable and humble and to tremble at your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.